This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. <coughs> Master Dogen said, having realization and being free from discrimination is what is called avoiding idle talk. To totally know the true form of all things is the same as being without idle talk. So to totally know the true form of all things is the same as being without idle talk. And avoiding idle talk is the last of the eight awarenesses of an enlightened being, and in our school is the last teaching of the Buddha. That's it. That's my talk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Although it's actually tempting. um, And the way I was feeling this morning and with this cough... um, I didn't feel confident I could make it through both interview and and the talk, so my apologies for not doing interview. And, you know, I've scrambled the order of these awarenesses a little bit, um, but I wanted to save cultivating wisdom for Sashin. And uh, Gokhan gave a talk on avoiding idle talk uh, just a few few weeks ago, so I'll try not to repeat what he said. You know, there are many... Um, ordinary forms of idle talk that we all engage in and can recognize. And, you know, this is talk that has um, no other purpose but to elevate, to distract, to disparage, to compare. And even St. Benedict uh, recognized, you could say, the danger of idle talk and built a, a safeguard in his rule And he said, above all, one or two seniors must surely be deputed to make the rounds of the monastery while the brothers are reading. Their duty is to see that no brother is so assiduous as to waste time or engage in idle talk to the neglect of his reading and so not harm himself but also distract others. And, you know, Benedictines in general are um, wary of idleness. And they, like us, work a lot. Their, their motto is ora e lavora, pray and work. And apparently one sister changed it to ora e lavora e lavora e lavora. <laughs> Some of our residents would probably say the same. So there's talk whose, um, <clears throat> whose purpose is, as I said, you know, just to distract or to but to create a kind of buffer between you and me. But I would also argue that there is a kind of idle talk that can bring us closer. I've seen people, uh, women especially, who do it well. You know, they'll praise another woman's perfume or a piece of clothing or ask for a, for a um, recipe. And if, if the purpose is not to ingratiate but if it's done out of a true sense to, to come closer, to connect to the person that you have in front of you, and usually in, in a setting like this, it's uh, usually somebody that you don't know. 
you don't know well. And so it's, it's, you know, it's kind of chit-chat that reminds us that fundamentally we're the same, right? We're human beings. And life is scary, or it can be. And so right now, why don't we just meet on this safe ground and see where that takes us? And so maybe in that sense, it's not exactly idle, but it's not deep either. It's like ice-breaking talk. And I was thinking about it, you know, we're getting ready to do our family retreat uh, next week, and I was just thinking about the kids and how we, we, we do a bit of this, you know, kind of this ice-breaking, because the groups that we have, they only come once a month, and so we have them for three hours, and then the next month... It may be the same group, but it's often not. And so there's a little bit of, of you know, bringing the group together that we do. And so we have a name game that we do every time. And, um, you know, sometimes it works very well, and, and sometimes you can tell where it just kind of leaves them cold. And um, there was one that, that was, um, I don't know if it was the most successful, but it's certainly the one that I remember the most, where you had to say your name, and your kind of favorite injury, <laughs> a scar <laughs> that you had. But at a, they really got into it. And at a certain point, we actually had to stop it because the parents started to get into concussions. And, <laughs> and so we, we, we cut it at the pass. Um, but it's, you know, it's uh, these kind of, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> you could say, um, I guess, low level or high level, depending on how you're thinking about it, talk that, um, that just has that purpose, you know, just to make us a little more comfortable. And then there is talk that is just idle, you know, period. Um, I've, I've uh, told some of you the story. When I was 16, me and my best friend um, went off to the beach together. And there was a group of five of us, five girlfriends, but their parents were not as progressive as ours, so they didn't let the others go. And they let me and my best friend go. You know, and mostly they had no reason to, to distrust us. So we went. And it was a time when you could actually do that in Mexico. I mean, I wouldn't do that now. I wouldn't travel alone um, pretty much anywhere, really. Um, so back then it was okay, and we went, and we went to Acapulco, and uh, we were at a club one night, and um, I was feeling playful, which happens so rarely <laughs> that when it does, it's like I, I take the opportunity. And I just looked across the room, and not too far away, maybe like where Kyosho is sitting, there was a guy uh, talking to another guy, and he was introducing himself, and I read his lips. And so I knew that his name was Alberto. And so I said to my friend, I'll oh, watch this. So I went over. <laughs> so, so I went over to Alberto, and I made this big show. Alberto, how are you? I gave him a hug. You know, I kissed him. <laughs> Have you been? It's so nice to see you again. And he's looking at me, and I can see the wheels turning. Who is she? Who is she? Who is she? But he kind of wants to know, and he's like, Who is she? Who is she? And I'm like, Don't you remember? We went to such and such. I, made, I named another well-known club in another beach. I saw you last year. Don't you remember? He's like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we talked for about half an hour. I walked away. 
he had no idea he had never seen me in his life. <laughs> so that was completely, <coughs> completely idle. <laughs> but harmless, I think. <coughs> um, and so there's talk that is uh, silent or voiced, <coughs> either way, which... <coughs> And I, I took this medicine that is, um, makes me feel a little weird. So if I start acting weird, <laughs> that's why. <laughs> um, <coughs> there's, there's talk that um, disturbs and agitates the mind, the Buddha said. And it can be um, talk that is outward-oriented, but it's very often not. It's very often us talking to ourselves. And there's talk that keeps us from seeing the true nature of things, right? This is what Master Dogen said. And that's, in one sense, that's the most pernicious kind of talk and is what I wanted to, to focus on. And so he actually says, he just says it directly, to totally know the true form of all things is the same as being without idle talk. Right? So now he's, he's speaking of another level. And that complete... Knowing There's no room. There's no opportunity for idle talk. In knowing the true form of a thing, there's no one to speak about it idly. There's no one to speak about it at all. And one of my favorite uh, stories in the Zen literature is um, that of... It's a story about Zhao Zhou's cypress tree. So a monastic asks Master Zhao Zhou what is the meaning of Bodhidharma's uh, coming to the West, which really is a way of asking what is Zen? What is the fundamental nature of things? And he says, the cypress tree in the garden. And the student says, well, don't teach me using things. You know, why are you, you pointing to the effable, to me, to um, express the ineffable? And uh, Master Yaj says, I'm not teaching using things or using objects. And so he, the, the monk asks again, what is the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming from the West? And Zhao Zhu said, the cypress tree in the garden. And about 200 years later, a monk is, is sitting, he's traveling, he's going on pilgrimage, and he's sitting with this koan unremittingly. And I've always really imagined him you know, wrapped up in a, in a thick woolen robe, and he's at, a, in a, at an inn, you know, on a roadside inn, and it's winter, and I imagine you know, the snow piled up against the, the walls of the inn, and it's so cold in his room that you, can, you could see, if you could stand there, the breath uh, going in and out. And he sits like this, and it's, of course because it's, it's snowing, it's completely, completely silent, right? That very particular kind of silence of winter. And he sits like this with, with complete concentration, Every cell in his body, every thought of his mind on Zhao Zhou's cypress tree. And, and night, so he goes one day, and then it turns into night, and then it turns into day again, and he's still, he's still not moving from his seat. And there's like soft footsteps that approach the door, and then they retreat again. And as the, the sun starts to come very slowly up the mountain, he's still sitting, he doesn't see it. 
and you know more and more you know his mind is is that in fact that body that tree you know roots going deep into the ground branches reaching up to the sky maybe there's a a, a little bit of that that last remnant of the moon and that night so now it's the second night there's a, a thief slips in through his room in, in through the window into his room. And, you know, I imagine him kind of rustling a little bit, and because it's dark, he doesn't see um, anybody else. And he's maybe rustling through things, and all of a sudden he turns, and the light of the moon shines through the window, and the, the thief is scared half out of its wits, his wits, because the only thing that he sees is this enormous cypress tree sitting in the middle of the room. So in Buddhism, the Dharmakaya, the body of reality, is one of the three bodies of the Buddha. The body of truth. It has no limits. It has no boundaries, no characteristics, no form. And therefore, it manifests the true form of the Buddha and of all things. So it can manifest as a cypress tree. can manifest as a lawnmower, as a pot of chicken soup, as you and me. And Trungpa Rinpoche says, in tantric terms, the Dharmakaya is Vajradhatu, indestructible space, or Dharmadhatu, realm of thusness. All the names and laws can function within it and not be conditioned by it. Because before, in, in, a, in an earlier uh, passage, here he's saying that the word Dharmakaya is conditioned. You, you have to speak. It's, it's, in a sense, it's like the Buddha has to take form, conditioned form, and then there has to be a conditioned name. But anything, all the names and all the things and laws that happen within it, you could say, are not conditioned. And in order to experience it, you have to undo old experience. So when the old experiences cease to function, are non-existent, that's the kind of thing it is, because the ground has no allegiance to anything. Right, so when the old experiences cease to function, you can be a cypress tree. You can be a stick of incense. You can be a mat. You can be a bridge. You can be a mountain. And we could also say that when the old experiences cease to function, the ground has allegiance to everything without distinction. So that cypress tree is pledged to the soil that it stands on and the wintry sky and the passing clouds and the waning moon, the cold night air, and the monastic sitting, unmoving. It is an allegiance with all of these things and is therefore inseparable from them. And so Trungpa Rinpoche also speaks of, of the other two bodies of the Buddha. So the Trikaya is the, the three bodies of the Buddha. And the second one is the Sambhogakaya, which is the reward body, the body of bliss. And the Nirmanakaya, which is the manifestation body. And he speaks of them, because he's speaking from a, from a Vajrayana perspective, he speaks of them in relationship to a fierce uh, deity, Vajrayogini. And so in Tibetan Buddhism, the, the, both the emptiness and the potentiality, so what can... Um, <coughs> arise and function out of that emptiness of shunyata, 
are embodied in the form of a dakini, a female um, spirit called a sky-goer. And so Vajrayogini is both a dakini of great power and a female Buddha. And um, she's said also to be kind of like the, the fundamental essence of all the Buddhas, and um, including these three bodies. And so the Dharmakaya is the absolute primordial mind, or its basic spaciousness. It is this ground that has no allegiance, or has uh, nothing but allegiance, you could say. It is also more simply mind and thoughts. The Sambhogakaya is the emotional and energetic body. So it manifests as concepts and as speech. And the Nirmanakaya is the physical body. It is form. It is action. It is also the manifestation of all the Buddhas who have ever lived. So Shakyamuni Buddha is the historical manifestation, is the Nirmanakaya, you could say, of that primordial Buddha. All the Buddhas who've ever lived and who will ever live. <clears throat> so Vajrayogini, in her fierce, even frightening manifestation, I believe she's, she's portrayed with a, um, a necklace of skulls, um, which was not about death. I can't remember exactly what it, what it was. It, it was pointing more towards impermanence, but it wasn't death like bodily death. And she has fangs. And she may even have a weapon that she's holding. And she's, she encompasses these three bodies. And of course, you know, we could, we could ask, well, you know, what does this have to do with me? What does it have to do with the fact that I suffer knowing these three bodies? You know, what does it have to do with my partner leaving me or my child getting sick or my job being taken away from me, my life um, catching fire? How does seeing the true form of things help me? And that's not, a, that's not an idle question. Um, you know, whenever we hear these teachings, we hear and chant, participate, we do the chants. Um, I, I've always liked that story, and, and Shugen Sensei um, tells it often also. You know, Dongshan is probably standing very much in a room like this, and he's doing service, and he's chanting along, and he's saying, you know, there's no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, as all of us chanted this morning. And he stops and says, well, wait a second, I have eyes, I have ears, I have nose, I have mouth. Why is the Heart Sutra saying this? Why do all the schools of Buddhism chant the Heart Sutra every day? What, what is this? And that's really the kind of mind. That's the kind of inquiry. Right? It's not just, well, you know, we're, we're, in this case, you're hearing about the three bodies of the Buddha. Well, that's nice. You know, I know that's a Buddhist teaching. Okay, and then you go about your, your day. What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with my life? Why have teachers for millennia spoken in all these different ways, sometimes um, ways that seem very direct and you could say very practical, perhaps very relevant to my everyday life? You know, so so um, I believe it's also Zhao Zhu. Somebody asks him probably something similar. You know, what is the nature of, of Zen? And he says, have a cup of tea. 
And we sort of get that a little bit better. Yes, you know, it's all about being completely present in the moment with this cup of tea, you know, the taste in my mouth. You know, we sort of get it. What about those three bodies of the Buddha being in that cup of tea? And how does, uh, not just knowing that, certainly not knowing intellectually, but how does um, hopefully realizing realizing it at some point, how does that help you? How does that transform your life? Does it? That's really the question. Those of you who did the uh, yoga retreat yesterday with Barbara, um, you know, I hope you, you, uh, there, there's some, some, some sense, and I think all of us really understand that um, our emotional body, our physical body, you could say our psychological body, our spiritual body, our mental body, our breath body, right? All of them need to come into alignment. When they don't, when they're not, we feel it. It manifests perhaps as illness, or it manifests as unease, or it manifests as confusion, manifests as suffering. So when our understanding is cloudy, our actions can be um, haphazard. Our speech is equivocating at best, or divisive at worst. And Patanjali called asana a firm, stable, relaxed, and comfortable posture. And it it, uh, refers directly to the seated posture, which was how yoga began. But you can extend it to all the postures. And of course, we won't be comfortable until we really understand ourselves. I won't be comfortable until I understand you to the best of my ability. And so we really don't need to know a thing about these three bodies of the Buddha, but we need to know everything about this body. That's the only way that we will have um, realization and be free from discrimination, as Master Dogen says. Without being clear about this, we can be clear about that. And our world is a perfect example It seems that the more we know about that, the less we really understand this. The less we understand really what's what's going on here. And therefore our struggle as individuals, as a country, as a species. And it doesn't have to be like this. That's the Buddha's third noble truth. It doesn't have to be a struggle. I had a lot of, a bit, I had a bit of of time to myself in these last few days, a bit of time to be with this body. And normally, you know, when I I feel sick, my, my experience just narrows drastically. And, you know, that still, that still happened. You know, at some point when I'm sick, I invariably, at some point, kind of feel sorry for myself. Um, actually, let me be kinder. At some point, I um, just feel the, the vulnerability. You know, what a, what a fragile, um, vulnerable proposition it is to be a human being. You know, and, and luckily, I haven't yet um, had any serious illness, 
but I get sick, unfortunately, frequently enough that I, that I, I feel that. It's like, oh, the, the balance is quite um, um, delicate. It's quite delicate. And so I was feeling that, but I also at a certain point, I, as I was lying in bed, I, um, I just reflected and, and felt that you know, my illness, my aging, my death eventually, are really just a, a, a dot right, in, that, in that sea of existence in, in which all manner of bodies are growing old, are dying. You know, I ate a banana that was slowly turning, oxidizing. The bacteria in my body that I was working so hard to expel, you know, were hopefully dying by the millions. The hydrangeas in our yard, you know, that looks so, so alive, you know, so, so full of life, I, in the fall would start to decay, would eventually die and hopefully be reborn again in the spring. And it was comforting. It was deeply comforting to feel uh, myself a strand of this web, to feel um, a part of this body of reality that does not grow ill or die. I mean, my own sickness would change, and it would pass, or it would not pass. In either way, I, ha- I was not and had never been apart from this web. I also realize uh, how much I don't know about this body and this mind. There's what I think I know and what I have slowly, slowly learned, but that is really still so much, you know, the tip the tip of the iceberg. And it reminded me of that um, John Powell video that uh, the residents watched recently for our Beyond Fear of Differences work. And Powell is a um, professor of law in African-American and ethnic studies at Berkeley. And he does a lot of work around uh, racism, but also understanding understanding, uh, bias and understanding its... um, you could say it's neurological basis. And you know, he was saying that basically our, our unconscious functions on the basis of, of bias. And it doesn't matter whether we think we're good people or not. All of us are biased because our unconscious processes 11 million bits of information per second. 11 million bits. And your conscious, our conscious mind, can only process 40. <laughs> so basically, that means that most of the time we're walking around is like a driverless car <laughs> that just got the instructions punched in by a whole group of people, actually. Nothing to do with you once, until you're, you're born and then you contribute. That is making decisions on, based on what? On these um, biases and stereotypes. And you can't, um, you can't tell yourself, well, I'm just not going to be biased. Because he says, so imagine that you're, you're, you're building a bridge, let's say, you know, from your, from your, I guess, your unconscious, the conscious, and to the rest of your body, your brain. You're building a bridge that is designed to hold 11 million cars per second. It's designed to hold 40 cars per second, and 11 million cars show up. So you're going to have a traffic jam that will last hundreds of years. Right? And, so, and you can't shut down the bridge either. So we have no choice, in other words. The unconscious is really driving most 
of our actions. Or it's maybe you know, a little bit like uh, getting our news from the tabloids. And so it's a little um, unsettling to think about it. It's a little unsettling. And yet, so, so he calls this you know, implicit bias or uh, implicit social cognition. So that's a little uh, more neutral term, you could say. And so this is activated in us involuntarily and without our intentional control. And that's why we can say, well, I just won't be biased. And so we have to have a, a way to sort through all this information. And so that means that, um, and, and, and of course it, it very much depends on the society that we live in, on the, the norms and the, and the biases that we've created you know, over hundreds of years, sometimes millennia, about what it means to be male or female, white or black, big or small, this or that religion. I mean, talk about idol talk, you know, in a sense, except it's not really idol because it manifests, it can manifest us in very hurtful ways. And so, in a sense, to, to even get to the point where you acknowledge that there truly is so much that you don't know about this, you know, how this works, to me seems kind of crucial to get anything, anything done. And then he also says, well, but you can't just change it at an individual level. You know, it's, it's um, good and it's necessary, but it's not enough. Right? We, we need to, to work to address the meanings, the associations that we have um, built you know, over these hundreds and hundreds of years. We need to change those meaning, meanings, <coughs> which really, in a sense, you know, as, a, as, a, as bodhisattvas, that should not come as a surprise. Right, I can't realize myself without you. I need you to help me what I can, to see what I cannot see. And so, and he also he talks about priming. Um, you know, how if you uh, there was a um, professor at Stanford who was doing these these tests, basically these experiments. He had a group of all women who were going to take a math test. And he had two groups with exactly the same level of experience. One group just took the test, did well. The other group, the, the test group, he said, right before they took the test, he said, I so enjoy teaching here at Stanford because there's so many smart women. They took the test. They did terribly, terribly. The reason is that women, we are... We are um, we believe, and we're told, women aren't good in math. And so when he primed the, the uh, salient stereotype, or, or, or you could say identification characteristic, female, something happened. That activated in the women's unconscious mind, and they did terribly. Now, he repeated the experiment, and he said, I really love... He had another group of women, and they were all Asian this time. And so... They come into the room, they sit down. He says, I really love teaching here at Stanford because there's so many Asian, there's so many smart Asian women. They aced the test. Because the salient uh, stereotype, in this case Asian, is Asians do very well in math. And so that got activated. And he said, you know, this, this kind of experiment has been replicated over and over and over again.
So think of the four immeasurables as a kind of priming, a skillful priming, the very opposite of idle talk. May you be filled with happiness and know the root of happiness. May you be free of suffering and know the root of suffering. It's the first two. So when I am doing that, I am saying, I wish you happiness, loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity. And I'm saying that, that I wish that for you because you're a human being who deserves these qualities. Regardless of my beliefs about you, regardless even of what you may have done. I'm looking, you could say, beyond, under what our society, and therefore my unconscious, might call your worth. And I'm saying, because you're alive, you deserve these things. Because you are thus. It doesn't, you don't even have to be alive in, this, in, this, in the um, sense of sentience. Because you're thus, because you're in front of me, you deserve this. You don't need to prove your worth any further. Your actions may need work, as mine do, but your fundamental worth is not in question. And that is seeing the true form of things. That is not separating myself or elevating myself, buffering myself from you. <coughs> Think of the Karniya Metta Sutta as a kind of priming. You're chanting it every day. I'm saying, I want to be a person skilled in goodness. I'm reminding myself that I am of that nature, and I'm invoking that reality so that when the time comes, I can act accordingly. Think of Sang Son's Faith Mind poem. In this world of suchness, there is neither self nor other than self. To come directly into harmony with this reality, just simply say when doubt arises, not to. Simply say, I am not this, this is not mine, this is not myself. Simply say, I will not other you. Think of the Buddha's instructions on the four foundations of mindfulness. If you're caught a feeling of fear, of anger, of resentment, of anxiety, say to yourself, an unpleasant feeling has arisen in me. And watch what happens to that feeling. There is a song of praise for uh, Vajrayogini, and the end of it goes like this. Self-born great bliss, O Vajrayogini, unchanging wisdom Vajra of Dharmakaya, non-thought, unconditioned wisdom, absolute Dharmadhatu, we prostrate to your pure non-dual form. Eternally brilliant, utterly empty, Vajra dancer, mother of all, I bow to you. The essence of all sentient beings lives as Vajra Yogini. From the milk ocean of her blessing, good butter is churned, which worthy ones receive as glory. May everyone eternally enjoy the lotus garden of the co-emergent mother. Our essence lives as the form of this great enlightened mother, this sky-goer. Fierce, as fire, soft as butter when needed, both male and female, or neither male and female. 
blessed and blessing all the worthy ones, that is, all of us. And this non-thought, unconditioned wisdom, this um, absolute dharmadhatu is our home, or rather, our, our birthplace. It's where we come from, it's where we return to when we stop talking. It's what we experience when we have the courage to be still, truly, truly still. Because it does take courage to see and accept our awakened nature. Many, having caught a glimpse, have turned away from it. So it takes courage and it takes humility to accept our greatness. And I mean great as in vast, as in immeasurable, as in limitless, unfathomable. But if we can, if we can accept it even a little bit, then we can live and act as a true persons of the way that we are. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.